I've been having a lot, a lot of fun with the show recently, and this episode is no exception. This is a conversation with James Jiang. I first met James back in April at a book launch, getting better at actually talking to people at book launches, which is nice. Uh, not just standing in the corner, looking, pretending like there's something happening on my phone. There's never anything happening on my phone, just, just so you know. My memory of that meeting is that we had a conversation about, about reviewing poetry in Australia. And we were talking about Gareth Morgan's review of Petra White's Cities and how we wished that there were more reviews out there like that one. And we were also talking about the fact that there are so few reviewers working in Australia who aren't also poets. There are exceptions, of course. There are people like Martin Jewell. Uh, James, it turns out, is another of the exceptions. My understanding is that he did write poetry at one stage. He might even still write poetry. But his primary role as a writer is as a critic. And at the time that we met, he was the editorial cadet at the Australian Book Review. So I went home after that book launch and I looked up his work and I found this article that he had written maybe six months before that, October 2021. The piece is called Blurb Praise and Hot Takes, Criticism in an Age of Publicity. I will link to it in the show notes. It is pretty short, but it really packs a punch. And it brought together so many of the things that I have been thinking about over the last five or so years, really. And, you know, I'd only just met James, but I thought, I am going to talk to this guy. I don't care what it takes. I'm going to bug him until he lets me talk to him on the show. In that conversation, I also brought up Ben Etherington's article, The Poet Tasters. I know I've mentioned that a few times on here before because that piece was... Uh, it was a huge shift for me. I've gone back and forth with Ben a little bit about the article and what I said to him recently was this article actually helped me decide to stop reviewing poetry. I knew it was a good thing to do. I felt like I was contributing, but I wasn't enjoying it. I will link to that article as well, like I have before, but I'm going to quote from it a little bit here just to get into this conversation so that there is so much in it but the way that Ben describes poetry criticism in Australia at that time he was writing in 2015 he says even long established poets can be nagged by the feeling that the aesthetic communities from which they gain recognition only reflect back the effort they put in miss a few readings take a break from publishing leave an editorial post and you and your work might disappear this is where the poetry critic presumably plays an important role. With her wide reading and long memory, she can pull up the latest warehouse dweller passing off Forbesian informality as her own insouciance, or remind us of that volume from the late 1980s, which did everything that the eco-poet claims as her own post-human innovation. The problem with this picture is that virtually all poetry critics are also poets. Like I say, there's a lot to that piece and probably what's needed is an update since it was published seven years ago. But um, yeah, that was, I read that and I, I just thought, 
yeah, I'm going to stop doing this. I don't have wide reading and long memory. I certainly didn't at that time. And I decided to step back. There was one other thing that was with me as I went into this conversation with James. And it was something I heard at a poetry panel, probably 2013. The panel included a couple of very well-known, widely published, highly respected poets. And one of them said simply, the Australian poetry scene is too polite. And I was a baby poet at that time. And I thought, okay, what, what does that mean? And it, it has just stuck with me for years and years and years as I've moved through various uh, versions of, of being a poet. I keep thinking about it because I know that I believe it is always good to be civil to one another. But to be too polite suggests this level of dishonesty, of covering up how you really feel, which basically means that what you're saying is kind of useless. So all those thoughts, Ben's article and that that comment from that panel, that was all with me as I went into this conversation. There's one other thing I would add before we jump into it, and that's just this caveat I want to make that I really think it depends on where you're standing, the angle from which you are viewing Australian poetry. I think that some people will definitely listen to this and think, what the hell are they on about? And I've been thinking particularly recently, because a listener brought it up, I've been thinking about my conversation with Lockie Little. Lockie is a First Nations writer from uh, Southeast Queensland. And when I spoke to him about the way that he works and what he does, it really sounded like he was working and writing almost on another poetry planet. And so while I think that, that everything we are saying here is very true, I also think it is true for, for one type of poet working in Australia today. And I would love to know how it lands with you. I'd love to know how this looks from where you're standing. So the article in question is called Blurb, Praise and Hot Takes, Criticism in an Age of Publicity. And immediately I was like, in fact, I think this was the article that got me to subscribe to ABR. All right. <laughs> because, look, I, I'm not a great subscriber to things, but <laughs> I read that and I thought I need to read that article. And I've, I've been thinking for years about the role of the reviewer in a small literary pond like Australia is. And I've been thinking a lot about the article that Ben Etherington wrote, The Poet Tasters, where, yeah. in which he broke down all the poetry reviews that had come through in the last year, categorised them and and showed the patterns that were going on in that. Um, so I've been thinking about this a lot. And when I read mm. this article, I just thought I have to talk to James about this. Mm. And I'm going to skip to the end as well, just to help frame it. Mm. You end it by saying, 
Australian publishing is a small and insular environment in which groups of writers move through various institutions as a virtual cohort. It gives our literary culture a clubby feel and the meliorist tone of a less than rigorous creative writing workshop. Can you tell that's the first time I've said that word out loud? Apparently meliorist means the belief that the world can be made better by human effort. So this is pretty damning. Um, can you unpack it a bit for listeners who are maybe new to poetry in Australia or listening outside Australia, or even for those of us who are in it and just want to understand what the hell's going on? Mm. I, was, I guess I was in a very querulous mood when I wrote that. I was kind of shooting from the hip. Um, but I still think it's true. And I, I don't think I'm the first person by any means to say something along these lines, which is just that it is very small. And so everyone you meet kind of has more than one job or one function in the scene. And it means that actually everyone's kind of careers or opportunities, there's something fraught about even the most informal encounters or, 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 or contacts you make. And so it's, yeah, it's just me, it just means that everyone is a bit wary and kind of, there's always this kind of, I guess, self-consciousness about the things you say, whom you talk to, you know, who you publish with, you know, um, there's a kind of, yeah. And I mean, and it's not, I don't think unique to like Australian poetry or Australian publishing, you know, I think similar things happen in certain pockets of Australian academia as well, um, which, you know, I was kind of part of peripherally for a number of years. So I think it's just the idea that, you know, every time you speak, you're, you're kind of implicitly seem to be speaking on behalf of a certain constituency. And there are certain things that are good about that kind of extra responsibility, but I think there's also something that's quite kind of um, restrictive about it as well. Um, so, yeah, I think sometimes I get the feeling that, especially, you know, if you spend time on social media or whatever, there's a sense that every time you say something, you're in this kind of, in, you're in an implicit seminar, creative writing workshop. And so even when you like review someone's book, you imagine them being there in the room. And again, I think that's natural. And certainly when I first started reviewing and writing about authors who could actually you know, write back to you, I did feel that like I was kind of writing in some sense, like um, even obliquely, like kind of to them. But that's just, yeah, and, and it's just the kind of, yeah, there's a certain claustrophobia about that. Um, and I remember when I first started working at ABR and being part of the kind of publishing world, there's something quite exciting about it because, you know, you, you know, got to know a lot of people very quickly. But at the same time, you know, you did feel like, oh, this is the set everything just kind of happens or unfolds within these, this quite kind of explicit perimeter, social perimeter, so to speak. Yeah. So that's, that's kind of where that sentiment was coming from. And I mean, I probably don't feel as kind of like agitated by it as the ending of that article made it out, <laughs> you know, <laughs> and in some sense, it's the first time I've written something. So I guess loose in a way and, and 
and you know um I guess like polemical almost I mean you know not that it's a particularly controversial take or anything like that but yeah yeah it's not a polemical take at all this Mm. is the same conversation I have had a hundred odd times Mm. and it is those same feelings that you described of claustrophobia of wariness Mm. of if I say this to this person is that the right thing to say in this context Mm. the the dishonesty that is part and parcel of those conversations like that's all Mm. If that was new to anybody, then where where are you working? Like, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I'd love to know. Can you describe then what it is like elsewhere? Because I know that you've studied overseas mm. and possibly been part part of literary scenes overseas as well. <laughs> um, I wasn't. I was. I wasn't that involved in publishing or, or literary scenes per se when I was studying in America or in England. Um, um, I mean, it, it's interesting because I feel like those places, maybe the US less so, you know, I was kind of always on the, on the border between kind of writerly literary types and um, academic types. Uh, and so that was, and, and I think that's actually something that's maybe missing, I would say, from Australia. Although I've got to be careful about how I say this because it's, I feel like academic culture is more linked up with quote unquote creative literary culture in America and England than it is here. It has happened here by virtue, I think, of a certain artificial institutionalization of writing through creative writing departments, but it is much more normal, I think, for say a leading literary scholar to review a work of contemporary poetry or, um, or, or fiction in America and England than it is here. Um, and that's something that, you know, for example, a, 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 a journal like ABR is actually um, does some interesting work in, I think. I should say that, as I, as I say this, I'm, I'm no longer an employee, an employee there. So I'm saying this as, a, as someone from the outside now. Um, and, and I wish there were more of that because um, yeah, I think one of the things or I think problems perhaps that has come up, and I don't mean to tar every creative writing program with this brush, but from what I've seen in terms of the graduates they produce, there is a certain kind of limited historical horizon that these graduates are drawing upon. And it is very presentist. And I think our reviewing culture would be and our, and our prize culture, generally our critic culture, critical culture writ large, would benefit from the input of people who have a much deeper and uh, more extensive, I think, historical immersion in, in, in writing and letters, um, that the dissemination of that kind of knowledge or familiarity in less kind of academic or less institutionalized kind of contexts would, would, would benefit the culture as a whole. Sorry, that's very like, that's a very broad way of saying um, academics might be better engaged in, 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 in writing in Australia than they otherwise are. And not just academics uh, in the sense of people who are employed by universities and who work in creative writing departments. So yeah, anyway, that's, that's just a kind of, again, coming from perhaps someone with a very, 
academicized background too. Uh, it, it, that's that's something I think I'd noticed comparatively uh, in terms of a you know in, by way of comparison. I think. Mm. I I want to just go back to what you're saying about the mm. the presentism and the. Mm the immediacy. Mm. So what would it, what would somebody look like who had that sort of historical view? Like what would their um, reading and experience kind of bring to it that we don't have? I think a greater stylistic range. I mean, and I actually think poetry in Australia is better off than Australian contemporary fiction in that, in this regard, you know, um, I think of, you know, someone like Lisa Gorton, for instance, you know, who is, you know, um, <clears throat> a done expert and, you know, draws upon that kind of her, her familiarity with early modern literary writing um, and, and that kind of worldview almost in a way. Um, or, you know, I met you at what, Lucy Holt's book launch. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, you know, the way that she draws on, you know, again, a kind of, um, you know, in, in that collection, the capacity, I think, the, the, the work of Louise Labay, for instance, like that kind of curiosity and, and breaking through um, that kind of, yeah, I think a contemporary bubble um, and evincing some sort of sort of scholastic, uh, I don't want to say scholastic, but kind of, you know, historical curiosity, you know, there's um, that um, uh, Russian formalist critic Yuri Tinyanov who talks about the archaist innovator. I mean, and, and that whole school, I mean, Bakhtin sort of is essentially kind of saying the same thing, right? That that experimentation is about like, in some sense, um, whether you know it or not, exhuming these kind of weird ghosts from the past. Mm, and yeah. I don't get that feeling from a lot of like kind of, um, yeah, younger writers who are being kind of like produced by, by, by creative writing programs. You know, I mean, at the institution I, I, I used to teach at, there was there were complaints. There was a constant kind of um, kind of like irritation by on the part of people who taught in the English department. That I mean, in the past, I think before I got there, you know, the the creative writing department would be offering courses on the history of the novel, and you know, starting with American Psycho, for instance. Wow. You know, and and that's kind. Of, I mean, you know, and I don't. I mean. This may be apocryphal, but that kind of story, I think, does have a kernel of truth in terms of the the the, the more limited, I think, worldview that you, you that the institutionalization of writing and the creation of this kind of professional pathway through the university has um, has done to to um, yeah, I think, what a writerly education is. Mm. Yeah. What if we take just a slightly more, like if we look a little bit further away from our very present moment and look at, yeah. say, the 1990s okay. and compare and compare Australian poetry writing criticism now to mm -hmm. what it was like back then, mm -hmm. do you think the pond is getting just that little bit wider and deeper? In terms because, of what? Well, I do feel like there is more, there is just a huge amount of work being created at the moment. Yeah, that's true, yeah. And by by many different kinds of people, mm. um, and I wonder whether that gives us more critical room. Like mm. there's there are more people writing, there are more people um, participating in the the 
for lack of a better word, the production of poetry. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so does that help at all or does that just mean that the same five reviewers have to now choose between 15 books instead of five? Um, I think it has... I'm of the belief that it doesn't have to do with the number of people. I think it has to do with the forms and the varieties of institutionalization and professionalization. And I mean, I, I can't comment because I, I can't say that I would have a secure grasp of what the, the situation or the ecosystem was like in the 1990s, you know, when I was, you know, a wee lad and, and not particularly <laughs> maybe interested in, in, in the writing as much as I am now. Mm. Um, but I think certainly, yeah, I think there are clear milieus, there are clear groups and affiliations that have a transformative effect on certain kinds of writers and they, their writing bears the stamp of those affiliations and those milieu. And so in some sense, you can have an ever-expanding pool of writers, but what they're allowed to say or what they think is worth saying is necessarily constrained by the platforms that they publish in, that they're kind of boosted by the circles they um, surround themselves. So that seems to me to be a more decisive factor mm. in the production of writing than necessarily the kinds of people. And now, I mean, that's not to say that there aren't new platforms and like new outlets that are coming around all the time, but I think, yeah, I think that, 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 that it's, it's so hard to start anything new, <laughs> as, as, as I'm sure you well know, and probably, you know, with, with a keener sense than I do. Um, and I think that the harder it is for that to happen, the less likely we are to have people writing unpredictable, extravagant things. I mean, you know, the, the kind of, to, to draw an example from contemporary fiction, you know, the kind of, the, the celebratory kind of atmosphere around, say, you know, Michael Winkler's Grimish is symptomatic of a, of a system where he is like so far an exception mm. <laughs> in many ways, you know, um, and, and maybe like it's, it's worth thinking about like why that is, you know, mm. uh, anyway. So that's, that's my sense of, of yeah. that. Yeah. I love the way you put it. What people think is worth writing. Mm -hmm. that is I feel like that's the whole game in some sense because so often when it comes to poetry at least you're writing probably to a large extent to impress your friends um and your your contemporaries Mm. um now there's a whole other strain of poetry that is writing to connect with and impress an audience yeah they're like two two separate things, but yeah, I'm just sort of turning this over in my mind now. Like, mm. what does it mean when all your friends write a certain way? Mm. And the fact is that you don't necess- you don't connect with or believe in that approach deep down in your gut, mm. but you're going to write that way anyway because you know you're going to get mm. the yeah. gold star. Yeah. 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 So, I mean, one of the things I'm interested in, and I would love for someone to to write about this, are the kind of like the the, the relationship between institutional value and like stylistic or formal elements 
you know. Mm. I mean, the, the, the most kind of obvious version of that is like rhyming in, you know, having a formalist period and writing in like, you know, quatrains or like writing sonnets, for instance. I mean, you there mean is like a, personally having your own little formalist period. Yeah, yeah. Or just like <laughs> choosing to write that way. Uh-huh. And what that immediately signals in terms of your your place in a particularly in a, in a particular milieu, or you know, but there are versions of that. You know, it's like how Forbesian is my poetry, and then that immediately places you in a certain camp. You know, right. Right. and and you know, there are and so I mean that's what I mean. Like so much of us, I mean, and maybe this isn't just Australian writing. This is just what happens when something has been kind of like. Um, either over, overly kind of like, I mean, I think this happens at two ends of the spectrum. It can happen at the end of the spectrum where something uh, has been kind of like overly commercialized or at the other end of the spectrum where a, a system is so fragile that you need to like constantly be writing to uh, a knowable and, uh, and, and predictable constituency. Otherwise, there is no audience for you. Mm. But you know, that way of kind of like the way in which writing in those two extreme polarised situations um, is less about, you know, whatever kind of autonomy you might be wanting to exercise and more about kind of creating affiliations, you know. I hate it when I read reviews and I'm like, this is not a review, this is a bid for friendship with a writer or a bid for inclusion <laughs> within a particular, you know what I mean? Yeah, and it's or, transparent. Yeah. Or it's proof of, the, of friendship with that writer. Yeah, yeah. And it's like, what does it mean when you say dedicate a poem to a particularly like well-known or recognisable poet? You know what I mean? It's like Ooh. in memoriam X, you know, like, like you know, and, and, and I'm not saying that those can't be innocent and like, you know, it's fine. Like you should be writing about, you know, friendship is a great topic for poetry, but yeah. mm. when it's declared in that way or when you like, you know, you are trying to kind of, you know, what is it ter- the term that like Bourdieu uses? Consecration, right? It's like every, every formal thing, every these small gestures are, term, are ways of consecrating either yourself as a writer or the particular kind of like, um, uh, uh, yeah, circle that you kind of are in or want to be part of or whatever. Mm, mm. Um, And I hate thinking like this, but it happens. Well, I think it's worth articulating. Like I think it's worth saying and I think it's also worth worth thinking through where Mm. that leads you, which is to a place where it only matters that you did the thing because you got the gold stars from from this one person. Mm. Um, And it's a suffocating place and it's a place where, like, I mean, I know for for myself Mm. um, when I have written and published stuff that I didn't believe in but I thought was the right thing to do, Mm. it's like when people like that work, you're like, great, well, you like the work that I faked so you don't actually like my work. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah, it's a lonely, it's a lonely thing. Mm, yeah. Um, but it's interesting that we're we're both kind of talking in this way that takes a desire to connect with some kind of audience as, as for granted. And I wonder if like the the way out is actually just to go, I don't care about audience. <laughs> I'm just I'm just yeah. gonna write for myself. Well maybe that's I, just I, depressing. I think yeah, it's I think that's depressing. It's like a big psychic burden to assume. But also I think you can't not be writing to an audience, right? Even if your audience is like 
the great poets of the past or something, not to get like too goodwill hunting about it, but you know, like <laughs> it's, it's, it's a bit, it is a bit like that, you know, mm-hmm. who are you, who, who, you know, the idea of a, of the ideal reader for your work is, is, a, is a, is a productive one and, and not something that I think, you know, writers need to get rid of necessarily, but yeah, I mean, having an ideal reader that maybe frightens you is, a, is, is maybe an improvement, you know, I think yeah. there, there's a lot, you know, what is that, that, that line from Wordsworth? Fostered alike by beauty and by fear. I think fear is like an underrated affect when it comes to the production of, of, of writing and especially critical writing. Not enough writers are scared of being called out for shit, I think. Um, yeah, you know, well, um, that's, yeah. 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 The politeness, the, pol- the politeness that pervades the, mm. I think it's still very much there. Mm. Um, yeah. It might it might be slightly being um, dismantled by by some of the the younger writers that I mm. that I see working, which is very exciting. But uh, I mean, in a sense, that, that 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 can be the other trap too, though, right? Like having the I mean, that's the hot take bit, you know, that the two forms of I think kind of redundant criticism is the blurb, where essentially you're writing these kind of pithy things that are basically things that you can just kind of excerpt and turn into a blurb. I think one of the tests of good criticism is in, in some sense the unblurbability of it, where it's like to really get to the point of what you're saying, you actually need to mix up the entire paragraph. Um, and But the, the other side of that is the hot take, which is kind of does the, 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 does the blurb, but is just a negative valuation, but is really the blurb in the same form. Um, yeah. 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 I, I like the way they put in the article, which is that the criticism should help ventilate the wheelhouse of consumer advice overheated by blurb praise and hot takes so the hot takes in this instance mm. mostly places like literary twitter yeah um and then the consumer advice being you, you put it the flurry of media releases author interviews mm. um that take up space that otherwise might be used for reviews mm. and yeah this all just kind of start it, it massages the opinion of the reading public so that when you walk into the bookshop, you're like, oh, yes, I know which book to get today. <laughs> well, that's that's another thing. I, I don't know if I go in hard on prizes in this piece. No, um, but go but for I it. I should because, yeah. I mean, this is, I think, I've, I've said this a number of times now, so it, like it's like become part of my hack persona. But <laughs> I think the problem with prizes and the, both the amount of resources they I would say like distribute, but that seems the wrong word because it seems like prizes do the opposite of we distribute resources. But like um, one of the bail, the really kind of like, kind of, I think, you know, bad consequences of the prize culture and the dominance of prize culture in Australia is it alleviates the critical burden on the general reader, the lay reader, right? Because when you walk into a bookstore and you just have a table of books with these stickers on it, then you're just like, I'm just going to go that. I'm just going to do that. You know, it takes the element of adventure out of reading, part of which is actually picking up a book and being like, I don't know if I'm going to like this. This may be bad. This may be not for me, right? But if you don't read enough books like that, your sense of what's good is going to be kind of quite superficial as well. So, and, and part of like my main point in writing this piece, which not everyone understood from some of the kind of tweets that I saw was that, Criticism is like being a critic is like a widely distributed function. You know, if you live in a healthy, maybe slightly utopian literary culture, 
critical the crit critical intelligence should be activated or kind of you know deployed at every level of production and consumption right so I mean, ideally, something like the prize, you know, the Miles Franklin, whatever, or you know, whatever, forward poetry prize, would create conversational debate, and that's what people like. That's how prizes are pumped, but they don't. No, they like, can you think of anything out. less worth debating? Yeah, yeah exactly. Right, yeah. Um, and they've. I mean, you know, the fucking Nobel Prize just got announced, and it's like I haven't seen a single interesting new <laughs> explanation or like kind of you know, take on, on, on Annie Ono. It's just the same stuff being trolled out. You know, it's like, here are like a new series of press releases for this author we've decided to consecrate. It's not, you know, here's an important point of kind of reevaluation or the reevaluation re is just the kind of, you know, retreading of whatever has already been, been said, you know. But I mean, the Nobel Prize is, we don't need to make this about the Nobel Prize, but, you know, <laughs> it's always a bit late anyway. So these writers are always already consecrated. So of course it's not really new because, in some sense, you know, maybe apart from, oh, Bob Dylan or something, they're, they're largely, I think, uncontroversial or past the point where these writers are um, kind of like generative points of controversy. For this yeah, book. yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. But you talked about, so the yeah. role of the critic being distributed like a mm. broad yeah. thing, and that also brings in this question of the, the editor. Mm. So... Um, I think this, I like this part best in the article. You write, your best critics should be your editors, those doing the commissioning, making acquisitions and working with authors on manuscripts, all those upstream activities that provide the ecology with its primary nutrients. Um, but editors get no visibility. Critics <laughs> get some visibility. Yes, but why would exactly. you be an editor, particularly an editor of poetry? Mm. Um I know that it is common practice and I really don't mean to uh, set anyone or say anything like to. You can bleep those like names out. <laughs> like time for and stuff. But like I think it's pretty common to get your poetry manuscript published without it being edited. Right. I mean, like, I, don't, I don't know. I have my suspicions, yeah. but I don't yeah, know. Yeah, yeah. Like as in like it's been checked. Yeah. But has there been a back and forth? Has there been a tussle? Yeah. Have you yeah. fought for a poem? Mm. Has your editor fought back? Have you thought about why these poems and not other ones? Like, mm. I don't know if that ha always happens. Yeah, they may be. I mean, that's the thing. I, you know, they, they do all these surveys about the state of publishing. And I think gradually this, the, that, this whole kind of like industry is becoming more transparent. Mm. But I really do want a clearer picture of what being an editor looks like especially a poetry editor and from yeah. the anecdotal stuff I've heard it sounds pretty pretty dire so well, yeah that's, it's not yeah. surprising yeah that, that's kind of what I mean is yeah. like it goes back to what you're saying at the beginning mm. we all have 17 jobs yeah nobody's an just an editor yeah and so that's probably why it happens is because they're doing it alongside 16 mm. other things yeah that's partial it people are extremely time poor um it's also, I mean, you know, there are certain poets who just refuse to be <laughs> edited, I think, from from, from what I know. Um, but yeah, I mean, look, this, it, I, I thought this was actually one of the least controversial points I made in this piece. But in fact, it was the one thing that like someone like kind of made a point of picking out and disagreeing with saying that I was essentially conflating an editor with a reviewer. 
And I guess my point is that going along with, you know, this, this thought, no one is a critic kind of like, no one can be like a critic pure and simple in some ways. I understand, you know, the, the, the ideal of this critic as this autonomous kind of site of kind of, you know, of, of clear-sighted literary evaluation always gets mixed in with these other motives. But my point is that like, you know, there's, that can be a cause for pessimism, but it can also be a cause for optimism because it's like everyone has a stake in at least in moments reviving this kind of ideal figure. Mm. And increasingly, I feel like editors who I, I totally appreciate can't be reviewers, they, but they are reviewers to some extent, right? And I think my point was kind of nudging that, nudging it towards that or making that a bit more explicit that before an editor makes, before they start thinking like a publicist and thinking about the market for a book, they need to be thinking about it from the perspective of a reviewer, you know? I mean, to be honest, it ought to start earlier than that. Like a um, writers should be thinking, reading their own work of, uh, in the vein of a reviewer, you know, you know, that kind of one of the first things English one fucking double zero zero one, you know, like the whole impersonality kind of trope that you teach kids when you teach modernist poetry. That's just, I mean, on a practical level, that's just about being a good editor of your own work. You know, being a good critic, that's, that's, that's kind of the point that's been, it's been getting at. And um, I've recently been reading the, um, this uh, British art critic, Charles Harrison, who was involved in this thing called art and language, really important movement in, in, in the turn from, you know, this kind of modernist kind of uh, experimental avant-garde paradigm towards conceptual art. And he talks about the way in which, you know, an artwork, and again, this might apply more readily to visual art than it does to poetry, but an art, artwork is basically the leftover residue from a process of negation, mm. right? When an artist confronts or kind of has material to work with, and it's literally a series of kind of prohibitions almost, I can't do this because to do this would mean this, and that's not what I want. I can't do this, right? And so there's a kind of, you know, um, uh, yeah, a whole kind of process of... of of, of stripping away really uh, before you're left with this thing that, you know, the kind of small um, residuum of, of allowable content or like technique or whatever. Uh, and I, I love that way of thinking about it because it actually shows you that, you know, criticism is not a secondary process. It's actually part and parcel of, 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 of being quote unquote, a creative writer. So to speak. Mm. Sorry, that was a long <laughs> digressive um, response to your question. No, yeah. no, that that's well. It helps me to think about the connection, like the reviewer as the endpoint, and why it is so mm. important to have a review culture that can speak freely. Mm. Because if the review is just going to be your friend yeah. saying how great your book is, mm. why bother? Like, why try? Mm. Mm. Um, there's there's nobody to impress essentially. <laughs> so, mm. And if the prizes yeah. don't matter either, then yeah, what, what are you kind of aiming for beyond impressing your immediate circle of friends? Mm. I think there should be like, I think generally there's a, there's a cultural problem here. And this is why, you know, I think that comment I make at the end about 
moving through a cohort and you know the kind of meliorist tendencies of our literary culture like if writers or there was a just much more of an acceptable culture of being critical and and that's, this involves writers being critical of their own work right and 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 not expecting and getting used to having pushback every at every stage you know and and i'm not talking here just about outright rejection i don't think that's necessarily like super helpful but i'm talking about yeah this kind of really kind of yeah um in-depth and, and, and this is, I think, the problem, right? Too much of like critical culture revolves around evaluation. And in some sense, I don't care that much about evaluation, right? Like, I don't really care whether you like this book or not. In some sense, when I read a review, I want you to be able to tell me how you think this book is working. I was actually reading the um, essays of Faye's Wiki. Um, oh, right. The, the Liar and the Pawn Shop. For some reason, there are like, copies in every secondhand bookstore in Brisbane where I now live. Um, and I, I picked uh, one up from, from this fantastic um, a bookstore called Archives Fine Books. Ah, in, in Archives, Europe. yes. Yeah, it's brilliant. I love that shout place. Um, yes, shout out. They don't, have a, um, uh, they don't have much of a social media presence. So I thought yeah, I, no, I'm trying to do it more. for them. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, that's what I picked up. And, and there's this, there's two actually more than two, there are there's several really brilliant ambivalent essays. And those kinds of reviews interest me more, not the kind of outright, you know, I mean, it's clear where she stands on like Les Murray and, and Christopher Brennan, but there's a certain kind of like, um, there's something quite inspiring almost about those reviews because they show someone who is very generously feeling into a work or a corpus that they're kind of really out of sympathy with. Mm. Um, with the Murray essay, it's more about trying to articulate why she feels locked out. So, you know, there's a there's a limit to the amount of sympathy that is kind of exercised there. And and but you know, she tries to articulate why that is. But the Brennan essay I found amazing because there is, I mean, you know, uh, I, I was really moved by the kind of the charity of her exactitudes, you know. So she's really trying to get into why it is that this thing doesn't work and then kind of stepping back and giving it a historical context, but also a kind of, you know, doing a kind of intellectual genealogy as well. And there's just not enough of that, mm. you know. And partially it's because, you know, you know, reviewers aren't remunerated well enough to, to spend proper time with the book, you know. And you can, I mean, not... Not that reviewers don't go out of the way to do it. And I think most of the good reviewers, I won't name who they are because, you know, I think it's quite clear, um, will have read uh, kind of widely across a, a writer's corpus to the extent that it exists, right? Obviously, you can't do it with a debut author. Um, but that sense of kind of expending time and energy to really inhabit the work and not just, like, come up with a... a um, uh, a kind of pat, you know, thumbs up or thumbs down, like there's some fucking Roman emperor or something, you know, like <laughs> that, that I find not interesting at all. But again, that requires space, which is what you don't have yeah. <laughs> um, a lot of the time. So yeah. for those reasons, I think, yeah, it's, it's very hard to be uh, a, a good reviewer, but also, you know, I think 
I'm, I'm curious about those conversations between, you know, editors who acquire or, you know, editors who commission, like, what is that like? Mm-hmm. Um, Come and tell me, editors. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, I'm, I'm going to let you off the hook very soon, but just as a last no, no sort of question around this mm. stuff, mm. I think we kind of mapped out the ecosystem pretty well, hopefully, in terms of like the the resources, the money, mm. the editor's role, the poet's role, mm. the critic, the readers, and then also time. Mm. What would you dial up or down to that you think oh, yeah. would make the most difference? <laughs> the most difference? Like what's the... What's the thing to tweak? Um, <laughs> I think, I don't think there's a small tweak. I think for, for anything, for things to get better, I really do think that like things need to be rethought from the ground up. Um, and it starts, I think, in a large part with education and the kind of, you know, your first contact with writing is always in that kind of pedagogical context, right? As, as, as you know, as your, you know, the, the older essay, which I listened to um, a few episodes back, kind of like plotted kind of very, very well, I think. Um, and I mean, I think rethinking how education works, preventing students from enrolling in creative writing programs, at least as undergraduates, I think um, preventing them being like, no, don't yeah. do that. No, you're not allowed. Yeah. You're not allowed. No, <laughs> quite frankly, only... <laughs> like I, yeah. What? what so, so you got to be, what's like, when are you allowed to enroll in a creative writing course? After you get your BA, okay. after you actually learn some shit about okay. writing art history, you know, it like disturbs me that you don't have to have a degree in art history and you can enroll in arts management or arts curatorship. It's that is like, weird. That's that's not a good thing. No, that's, <laughs> that's like weird. a it's a to me honestly that I'm gonna say this is gonna be so triggering, but like that seems to me a very kind of like it's like a Melbourne pathology to me in, <laughs> in its confusion of the culture with of culture with the culture industries. Like that to me is just like yeah, it's like no, you're not you're not actually a artist. You're you're a business person. <laughs> Like, and the fact that you can confuse those two and get away with confusing those two is bad for everyone. It's bad for you and it's bad for the people you're selling to. It's bad for the artists you're trying to sell. Just bad for everyone. Um, so that's that's one thing I'm, I'm quite certain of. So come fight me, creative writing, arts curatorship people. All right, um, he's on. <laughs> um, and uh, uh, yeah, um, so that's one thing. I don't know that there's like, yeah, I mean, I also think one of my problems with, I guess, prizes is it's like it's a kickback for work already done, whereas I feel like it, that money would be better spent funding things at the beginning, mm. like fellowships mm. and just people giving, I mean, time, you know, anyone who, you know, again, is trying to make things work so that they can free up some time to write. Like if you just, instead of giving, what, like $80,000 for the fucking Prime Minister's Award, you created two or three fellowships that literally allowed people six months off to write something. That's way better for everyone. You know, I don't, I don't, I don't like, it just seems an extraordinary waste of resources. And again, it closed, it narrows people's windows of attention too. 
Mm. It's like, oh, I only need to worry about these good providers. <laughs> you know, the people who are on the shortlist. It's fine. I'll read their books, consider myself cultured, go to the fucking dinner party, go to my book club, talk about those books. I'm fine. I'm covered on literature, right? Like, that's the attitude. Um, <laughs> because the job of that person is to appear cultured. That's like, that's what yeah, they're trying yeah, to do. Yeah. Yeah, and that and that, that's another thing, right? That's another thing. It's just like books, books as life, lifestyle items. Um, you know, the, the the culture of the book stack. You know, like, I mean, I'm all for return to like material culture, but like, none of these books are materially interesting. They all have the same color. They have the same swatches. They have the same fucking everything, right? It's not like books as material objects have become less interesting, even as they've become more visible because of various kind of distribution modes of distribution etc mm. um so that's another i'm getting i don't know why i'm getting like worked up towards it like i may be feeling the pressure of this interview coming to an end so i'm just <laughs> venting my spleen now but I yeah love it. just keep um, going what else uh, have you got <laughs> yeah so i don't know i don't i don't know and i think you know people who aren't purebred public like you know every every institution ends up becoming a victim of its own success because it kind of starts breeding its own type. Mm. And so, you know, people who are like pure blood publishing professionals um, are very useful and like obviously completely necessary to publishing as an as a, as a, as a, as a industry, but like it would be good to get people who are involved in, in who are like, you know, who are literate, who are invested in literary culture, um, but who are not, you know, you know, purebred professionals, like, and this is, this is why I think academics are kind of important, right? They at least kind of like nominally have a certain kind of independence, um, not when they're producing academic work, right? But certainly if they kind of extend outwards and, and, and do a kind of, and, 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 and plug into the culture in a, in a, in a different way. Mm. Um, yeah, I mean, I spend a lot of time complaining about like, academics and, and 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 universities or whatever as everyone does who's had anything to do with them but I do think that there's like something to be gained from from a, a greater a, an infusion of unworldliness into into literary culture actually I just I, you know it's, there's certain writers certain works certain publishers who are just so who just exude a certain savvy and to me that's an immediate like kind of it puts me off immediately mm. um, savvy as in i know that this is going to get me cover out on the front table yeah exactly yeah. exactly they're being pushed in a certain way and i mean it's interesting because behind that exterior you know there's actually not a lot of competence you know i've there are I've judged certain prizes where the publisher has submitted work on the poet's behalf for instance and it's like these are not the best poems in this book why have you chosen these ones you know um, and so, yeah, that's what I mean. There's like kind of a kind of uh, uh, professional uh, business savvy, so to speak, marketing savvy, but actually not a lot of kind of uh, literary competence, I feel, um, behind that always. So this is not a focused or coherent answer to your question. So no, basically no, no, no. everything, <laughs> no. I, think, I think, yeah, just having, you know, it's not, a kind of like bureaucratic organizational or, or kind of economic shift even although i think starting with you know more money is always kind of um the most helpful starting point but yeah i think it's about 
these these forms of these institutions. I would keep banging on about institutions because that's how subjectivities are created. You know, you know, you have your raw personal experience, but how that comes, how that becomes expressed, and the degree to which it becomes politically salient or culturally salient, is all about institutionalization and that form of of, of yeah mm. acculturation or whatever. So that's my uh increasingly vague hot take <laughs> <laughs> but that's the point right it needs to it needs we need to listen to the whole paragraph yeah exactly yeah yeah, yeah. that's that's the takeaway we yeah, you need yeah. the whole paragraph you need the whole paragraph yeah um actually as you as you're talking you're making me think of uh one academic or one group of academics who have done exactly what we're talking about to some degree mm. and that's um Justin Clemens and mm. his two friends who I don't know well enough to know their full names. Uh, I believe their names are Adam and, oh, God, the other guy's amazing, but I've forgotten his name. So sorry, that person. Um, they're making a podcast called The Baron Field Experience. I don't know if you Oh, God. <laughs> it's completely nuts mm. and and wonderful. And, yeah, I guess the, the bad news uh, takeaway from this conversation is uh, academics, oh, I know you've got marking and you've got meetings and you've got mm. um, uh, HR breathing down your neck, but we actually need you to do critical work as well. And uh, sorry about it. <laughs> well, I mean, that's, I mean, can I, I, I just, can I say something positive about, Please? Well, can I say something positive? <laughs> um, which is that one of the things I do like about poetry is that there is a respect for, there's no way of saying this without sounding slightly kind of like conservative in like the lamest sense, but there is respect for kind of like tradition and the history of poetry, you know? And I think one of the great things that, you know, I mean, you know, Justin, for instance, has done with, with, with Baron Field is a revival. And someone like Michael Farrell, right? Like writing Australian Settlement is an amazing book, right? Mm. And it's in, in, in doing that kind of like, archaist innovation type thing and uncovering these things from the past is really weird historical documents and being like this is not so different from avant-garde poetics yeah. you know um and there seems to be an immense appetite amongst people who classify themselves as, as poetry people and who are aficionados of australian poetry to go there and do that stuff and also you know be writing or contributing to to, to contemporary poetry and poetics. And that's one reason why, apart from the way in which they're freed up by how financially powerless poetry is, that's one reason why I think Australian poetry is and will be for a long time much more interesting than say Australian contemporary fiction um, because of that wider historical sense. The fact that, you know, Ospo kids will read, you know, Baronfield or Mary Gilmore, you know, as kind of unsexy as those things are. <laughs> um, and I'm so, I mean, I'm so grateful for that work, you know, because it wasn't until I started reading, do, I mean, teaching Australian literature, knowing like shit all about Australian writing from a, that historical perspective that, you know, you come across something like Ned Kelly's Gerildry letter and it's like an amazing document. It's like, we didn't need bloody William Blake. We have it here. Like, this is yeah. it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. So yeah, there's a lot of kind of intellectual ferment um, and um, and um, yeah, and, and backed up by this willingness to like kind of trawl through the archive and 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 innovate by to innovate by excavating, you know, like that's 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 really cool to me. And and again, maybe appeals to me because I you know was formerly a scholar, but I think 
a lot of the interesting work kind of does that, whether it, it knows it or not. And sometimes when a, a poet doesn't know that, they do need someone whose job is primarily archival to tell them, hey, this is what you're doing. You know? Yeah. Um, anyway. Yeah, yeah, no, that's great. I just keep thinking about how this is, there are a few things less sexy than Mary Gilmore's poetry, but <laughs> still go read it. <laughs> You're still here, so now you're going to listen to a Mary Gilmore poem. <laughs> the thing about Mary Gilmore is that she lived for just ages. She was born in 1865 and she lived until 1962. What a wild lifespan. I mean, she saw Federation, World War One, World War Two. She almost lived until the freaking moon landing. Good Lord. I don't know when she wrote this poem, but um, I, I, I like it. I officially like it. I think this is proof that um, fuckboys existed uh, forever. This is called Eve Song. I span an Eve span, a thread to bind the heart of man. But the heart of man was a wandering thing that came and went with little to bring. Nothing he minded what we made, as here he loitered and there he stayed. I span and Eve span a thread to bind the heart of man. But the more we span, the more we found. It wasn't his heart, but ours we bound. For children gathered about our knees. The thread was a chain that stole our ease, and one of us learned in our children's eyes that more than man was love and prize. But deep in the heart of one of us lay a root of loss and hidden dismay. He said he was strong, he had no strength, but that which comes of breadth and length. Hell yeah, Mary. He said he was fond, but his fondness proved the flame of an hour when he was moved. He said he was true. His truth was but a door that winds could open and shut. And yet, and yet, as he came back, wandering in from the outward track, we held our arms and gave him our breast as a pillowing place for his head to rest. I span and Eve span, a thread to bind the heart of man. Mary, you and I are going for drinks.